2: Hello, you're listening to me, Liz Earle, with Wellness with Liz Earle. And I'm actually away from my studios at the moment on a research trip. So I would like to introduce you in the meantime to another super interesting episode. And I recorded this a few weeks ago back in London when I was joined by Helen Browning, OBE, the multi-award winning organic farmer, champion of British sustainable farming, a lead on so many food and farming bodies, including the Food Ethics Council, the Agriculture and Environment Biotechnology Commission, the Meat and Livestock Commission, chair of the Animal Welfare and Health Strategy Group, and last but not least, the chief executive of the Soil Association since 2011. Few. She's a busy lady and not only is she absolute leading light in terms of sustainable organic farming, running a 1300 acre farm in Wiltshire, but she also found time to stop by the Wellbeing Studios to share some of her vast knowledge of the issues surrounding the way we currently produce and buy our daily food. It's a really fascinating listen. I do hope you enjoy. And don't forget that you'll be able to download the podcast notes with the links to all she talks about directly from the wellbeing.com website. Take a listen. So, Helen, it's a real pleasure and a privilege to have you here. Thank you for coming to my studios. Um, I'd like to talk to you really about how you got into farming in the first place. What was your journey?
3: Well, I grew up on a farm. I'm a, I'm from a long, long line of farmers as far as I know. Uh, and I was particularly inspired by some great aunts that I had um, living up near the Morven Hills. Um, and these four spinsters had lived and worked on the farm together all their lives. Um, and uh, I just saw them having this sort of wonderful life, actually, farming, living in a more free way than a lot of women were, I think, mm, back in the sort of 70s. Um, they went to market, they drank whiskey, they went hunting, <laughs> they did all sorts of... They seemed to have a whale of a time. And, uh, and, and I love the land. I've always loved the countryside. I grew up um, tagging along behind my father on the farm and by the time I was about eight, I knew I wanted to farm myself. Really? Did you
2: have brothers and sisters?
3: Yes, I did. And uh, in fact, my youngest sister also farms, so really? it's strongly in the blood. Mm. Uh, and uh, and I was so lucky to have the opportunity. My yeah. father had come to Bishopston, which is where I am now in, in 1950, and taken on the tenancy of Eastbrook from uh, the church. Um, and so I had the opportunity to take the tenancy on from him. And so, what were you
2: farming then?
3: then? Well, he was farming uh, dairy, beef, and arable um, uh, and he was very much the forefront of uh, you know intensive farming new methods coming in so we really? had the latest sort of air tech sprayer and all those Gosh. kind of things and I grew up with those aspirations I suppose it was all about yield you know then and the sort mm-hmm. of 70s and 80s and I grew up with all those aspirations. So in, in terms of arable
2: what were you growing things like We wheat? were growing wheat
3: and barley and oats um, and uh, I think we grew many pulse crops um, and we had uh, two dairy herds and uh, beef and cheap so it was already a mixed farm which was great but lots of reps knocking on your door trying to sell you sprays and well certainly when chemicals. I took over the farm I it was one of the things I really noticed I just had lines of them down the drive uh these Barons kind of, of chemicals yeah just all of them telling me that you know if I used this input or that spray it was going to enhance my yield by x or y and I got to the point uh, very quickly actually uh where I just felt that I was it was a bit like an athlete deciding they want to run clean I wanted to know how fast <laughs> I could go Right. what I could produce without the drugs yes. um, because then I felt that you know I wasn't completely sold on organic by at that point I, I but I wanted to know what I could do without all these inputs in order that I could properly value um, those and know whether these reps were telling me they they're, the expensive they're very product. expensive mm. I mean in the first few years of us going organic we switched from spending about a hundred thousand pounds a year on chemicals to spending uh, a, a, almost the same more more on labor actually so we switched you know the right. were But how much
2: better for the rural economy that actually that money is going into employing people who are having fulfilling, rewarding jobs working outside working the land
3: absolutely and and not themselves being uh subjected to those sprays and chemicals because actually that's where a lot of the problems if you're looking at where pesticide uh Mm. pesticides become problems i mean certainly in the developing world it's it's particularly problematic but even in this country um there's a lot of concerns that farmers Mm. and farm workers are the ones that are um, bearing the brunt of of Mm. of, of pesticides so that's a really interesting point actually because
2: i know that i mean i work obviously writing about food safety and sustainability, there's our well-being. And it's always from the consumer's point of view. It's, mm. You know, you don't want to eat that lettuce because it's been sprayed so many times. But actually, to your point, the real people who are at, in the front line here yeah. at risk are the people who are handling these things and breathing in the sprays and, and working with them year in, year out on a daily basis.
3: Absolutely. And I remember when I was a child, we would be sheep dipping, for instance, with mm. the, uh, organophosphates. Um, and nobody was wearing protective clothing in those days. Yeah. And the same with sprayer operations now everybody looks like they're going to the moon if you're actually operating a sprayer you've got Which so much is, stuff guess, on yeah, um, but, but then you know, it shows you how dangerous these yeah, things are but 20, 30 years ago that wasn't the case mm. and we were using these chemicals uh, and that's what's happening in the developing world too people are using knapsack sprayers they with are. chemicals running Absolutely, down their back can, and, yeah, uh, and, and with no protection and so I think that one of, for me one of the, one of the reasons to uh, think about buying organic is to try and safeguard uh, mm. those people who are um, mm. producing food
2: so you took over the farm when? I took over the farm in 86. And what happened then? Uh, <laughs> Did you immediately say get these off my land? Or? Well
3: no I, I I started some trials on the farm so we had 20 acres where I ran some trials um, looking at organic techniques for the first year or two um, and so we had our first uh, crops of clover different types of clover we had intercropping trials where you're growing different crops together uh, raised beds of vegetables we had our first house of laying hens my first two pigs came onto that site we planted a small orchard and it was about testing the methods and giving ourselves confidence that we could actually do this across the whole farm but it was also about winning the hearts of minds of the people on the farm mm. uh, because I was quite young and I uh, and female. Yeah, this young girl come in. Absolutely. What did they, they think? They, they were pretty horrified. They think you were a lunatic. <laughs> yeah there was you know you'd got uh, men most of them twice my age um, mm. all of them coming from a very different background and used to a very different style of management they have been used to this kind of you know quite traditional boss comes in and tells you what you're going to do for the day at seven o'clock in the morning and you get on and do it um, I came in with all these thoughts about actually wanting to build a team wanting to kind of get people working together better and they all thought I was completely mad and then they knew I got these organic kind of whims as well uh, so they were pretty uh, pretty nervous so this is partly this first year or two was partly about just giving everybody a bit of confidence this mm. wasn't completely mad and uh, what happened
2: with your yields.
3: <laughs> Well, the yields um, on things like uh, dairy actually they didn't change that much when we converted the dairy herds. We, they dropped a bit, but we weren't we weren't doing the ten thousand liters a cow anyway. We were kind of still quite grass based. Um, on the arable front, our yields went down initially probably by about uh, you know forty forty to fifty percent, but then sort of came back up a bit once mm. the land recovers and gets used yes. to the, the you know the microbiology starts to mm. uh, to work well, but. On Obviously, we were saving all these chemicals. And if you looked at the sort of, you know, the margins on a crop by crop basis, um, then actually we weren't very, we were were very close to what we were doing before. But I'm a a tenant farmer. I don't own the land. So I had to make the thing pay from day one. Um, And so it was very important to get the financials right to give us confidence that we were going to be able to do this without going bust.
2: Mm. It's interesting, though, picking up your point about the land had to recover, so a lot of people listening are really not going to have much of a clue about land management mm. and farming soil health. I only know a tiny bit about it because I've started farming in this last sort of decade or so. And it is actually the most fundamental thing. And I guess going back to basics, it's why the soil association is called the soil association and not sort of the farming association or the organic association. It
3: it comes down to the soil, doesn't it? Everything fundamentally starts with the soil. I mean, I think people just uh, completely, and why should they, don't get that, that sort of top six inches of our earth's crust, that tiny skin that covers the earth, is what we depend on fundamentally um, in order to survive. And everything ultimately, or pretty much everything, is recycled through that soil and uh, and the health of it and the you know the vibrancy of it how much organic matter it holds uh, what the microbiology is like uh, how much water it can hold um, is it affects our day-to-day lives and in, in ways that we just don't mm. most people just wouldn't have really had the opportunity to understand
2: you just see it as a layer of dirt yeah don't yeah and, and it's no, you inconvenient it that
3: we that you know we bring it into our homes on the bottom of our shoes absolutely and just think, and, and in the states they talk about so if you talk about soil in the states they don't like the word soil because it soiled you know it's kind of not a nice word um but soil is fundamental and i'm glad that the soil association has always stuck to keeping its name as the yes. soil association because it is uh it is that fundamental and um and farming our our sort of first duty as farmers is to care for the soil and to uh leave it in a better heart than we have found it mm. because uh, our ability to feed ourselves and the longer term fundamentally depends on that. And not just that too, you know, soil also holds more carbon uh, than everything else in the world put together. There's more carbon in the soil than there is in the atmosphere. So, you know, we know that if we want to address t- climate change, getting more carbon back into the soil uh, is going to be very important If you want to protect ourselves against floods and droughts, then again, the amount of organic matter and humus in the soil is crucial. So it's not just about the food production, it's about uh, clean air, clean water, um, and uh, and managing things like flood risk too. Mm.
2: So talk us through the differences then between
3: intensively
2: farmed soils, which presumably have only been happening for the last what fifty years or so?
3: A Bit more than that. I mean, I think you know, mankind has disrupted soils for for thousands of years. You know, from the time when we sort of slashed and burnt and moved on and had patches of agriculture and then allowed things to regenerate, um, and settled agriculture. You know, we grad- we, we we learned to, to to we learned about rotation. We learned how to build fertility so that we could stay in one place farming the same ground. So, rotation is when you move sort of sheep
2: from one field and then plant a, a, a clover crop or something. The yes. Next field.
3: So, a rotation is when you're building fertility using leguminous crops that fix nitrogen from the atmosphere, things like clovers or peas or beans, those kind of crops. And then in subsequent years, you're growing crops that will use that fertility, like wheat mm. or barley. So, if you grow peas in a field one year, the next year
2: you might grow wheat on it. Yes. So, and and it
3: will be enriched because of the peas. Absolutely, and you won't need artificial fertilizer because you've captured that natural fertility from the atmosphere, and uh, and you've left it in the soil for the next the next crop.
2: So when did we understand that? When were people beginning to farm in that way?
3: Oh, in the uh, in the in the in the seventeenth century they were really? starting. So you've got people like uh, Turnip Townsend, and you oh, know, great some name. Are, Yeah. <laughs> so you've got you've got the great <laughs> agricultural reformers uh, who started to uh, develop things like the Norfolk four rotation um, mm. so some of those ways of um, rather than just having to move stock around to move fertility around uh, developing rotations that allowed you to farm the same patch of land and improve yields um, and not have to you know not have to bring fertility in from elsewhere otherwise to you'd always extent. move on otherwise like a settlement always, yeah, community so early agriculture on. was very much about planting crops um, and then allowing the ground to recover to fallow or to regenerate maybe maybe even rewild to use a, uh, for a for for, for 10 or 20 years and then come back to it um, settled agriculture demanded that, that we started to develop ways of building that fertility mm. and then using it um, and that's the kind of approach that organic is uh, organic mm. farming is taking yeah and then but what's happened over the last 50 70 80 years is that we've started to use artificial fertilizers like manufactured nitrogen which allows us to get away from using a rotation fixing nit- nat- nitrogen naturally mm. um, in order to uh, to grow our crops
2: and what's the issue with that
3: the issue with that is kind of that there are quite a few issues with that. If your uh, manufactured nitrogen, uh, artificial chemical nitrogen is, you, is very energy expensive to make. So it's a climate change problem. Um, but it also allows you not to pay back to the soil. Uh, so you're using those um, those fertilizers uh, to continue to grow crops year on year on year in the same field without putting, as I term it, sort of money in the bank first for me, organic Farming is about uh, putting money in the bank and then drawing it out uh, a year or two later. But Uh, what happens
2: if you just carry on using them?
3: Well, I think that's where we're starting to see the chickens coming home to roost at the moment. Because if you talk to farmers in places like the east of England, where they've been growing monocrops year after year after year for the last few decades. uh, Ten years ago, they'd have said, we've been doing this for 30 years, no problem at all. Mm -hmm. Now they're all saying, oh, my goodness, our soils have run out of steam. Uh, we're not getting the yields anymore. Yields are plateauing or falling. We've got problems with things like black grass. The chemicals aren't working. We suddenly recognise we need to reverse this decline in soil organic matter. We need to be putting some goodness back into the soil again. Uh, we need to be put to feeding the soil, which is fundamentally what mm-hmm. the Soil Association is about, feeding the soil, not just the plant directly with a chemical input. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly there's a lot of interest from farmers who have been farming very intensively for a long time in the kind of methods that organic farmers have been using Mm -hmm. for the last, uh, you know, last 50 or 70 years. Um, And so the Soil Association is doing a lot of work to say, okay, cover crops, rotations, getting some livestock back. What's a cover crop? Cover crop (laughs) is when instead of leaving the ground bare over the winter or just leaving it in stubbles, uh, you put a crop um, and it can be a number of things. It could be a mustard or it could be a turnip or it could be a combination of things uh, uh, to um, uh, grow quickly, capture all the fertility that's around in the autumn so that it doesn't leach into our watercourses over the winter, mm-hmm. and then ploughing that in or feeding it to livestock over the winter or early in the spring, um, which puts that organic matter back into the soil again, and some nitrogen and recycles some of the phosphate and pot- potassium as mm-hmm. well. So it's a really good way of giving the soil a bit of a um, a, a sort of tonic, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and paying back in a little bit more um, with a short term uh, crop that just produces lots of bulk, lots of green material uh, which uh, the soil really enjoys.
2: Mm. Interesting that you talk there about runoff and the nutrients going into the watercourses. Presumably the same is also true of the synthetic chemicals that are going onto the field. What's the issue with water pollution and, and cleanup from farming?
3: Well I think one of the things that the Environment Agency and others are really concerned about still is diffuse pollution. So that's the sort of low level leaking of chemicals and fertilizers into watercourses. So I think we've got better at stopping the kind of really big incidents of kind of you know sewage or farm yard manure getting into the water or even big chemical leaks where we we are still getting a lot of trouble. Is things like uh, phosphate um, uh, leaching into water courses, causing algal blooms, which smother and deoxygenate the water. Um, soil actually itself still getting into water into water courses a lot of our problems as I understand it with fish populations are that you've got soil on our riverbeds which has leached out through the in, through the streams and that smothers all the eggs um, the, the fish eggs in the, in, the, in the rivers so you've got all these problems of um, chemicals and soil uh, leaking into our rivers and streams um, and causing problems because of that. And, and why would organic farming prevent the leaching of soil itself? Because uh, it's all about trying to protect the soil at all times Time. so we don't grow we don't allow we don't we don't grow crops like maize for instance or which are uh, very leaving the soil in a vulnerable condition over the, over the winter um, the idea is that you're always keeping a green crop on the ground to stop the soil moving um, so a lot of attention is paid to trying to make sure that you're uh, always growing something keeping the ground covered so that you're protected so do you ever grow soil.
2: maize or is it just not in the winter
3: very uh, uh, a few organic people People, it's not. It's not. It's not forbidden to grow maize, um, but uh, because we, we're not using the chemicals to destroy all the weeds, if you do grow it most organic farmers would be under sowing it putting another crop underneath it mm-hmm. to, to stop the weed growth mm-hmm. and that will hold the the soil in position uh, over the winter mm-hmm. but actually not much maize is grown organically in this country i mean there are crops you still have to be careful about even if you're growing them organically things like potatoes which are harvested late um you still need to be careful about making sure that that those that's on the right ground and it's not it's not vulnerable mm-hmm. um so the water boards are struggling with chemicals like metaldehyde, which is a Slug, um, a slug treatment uh, to kill slugs. Uh, some of these chemicals are costing the water boards a fortune to strip them out, both in terms of the capital plant and the running costs of keeping our drinking water clean.
2: A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend, but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are
0: available for these changing times
3: A certain amount might be coming from gardening. I don't know that anybody's done a really good analysis of mm. how much comes from gardening. But it but comes from obviously... farming as well. Is, oh, a oh, issue oh, oh, for huge issue. Right. Um, so big tracts of land uh, are treated with slug pellets. Um, and uh, and and that is a, a chemical. I would say the majority of the problem that the water boards are facing um, are chemicals that are coming from farming rather than from gardening. And so
2: can that money be recouped from the manufacturers of the slug pellets? That would seem well, the moment that
3: doesn't happen and so right. I think it's well, kind of principle of the polluter pays it, it is and I think when you're looking at uh, you know the sort of costs of growing our food and, uh, and and why organic is a bit more expensive you know that's kind of a very good example of where the cost is being borne by the, by the consumer paying we're the paying water, our, our water, it, water bill our water bill is bills higher because of because we're putting because all these yes exactly mm-hmm. so in a more sane world we'd be saying well actually it's better to stop these things going in in the first place <laughs> yes. um, and then we wouldn't have those bills somewhere else. So I always say actually in a really sane world it's probably cheaper to grow our food organically if you look at all of those other costs uh, that we're incurring and that we don't recognise or that we're paying for in another out of another pocket. Um, uh, But uh, at the moment we don't have a sane economic system.
2: Mm. Well maybe with the change in what's happening in Europe there's an
3: opportunity do you think? I think there might be. I mean, I think there's obviously huge threats from Brexit in terms of farm policy, because the the common agricultural policy has kind of, you know, not quite fossilised, but has kind of uh, has been able to pay for some of the environmental improvements and that sort of thing, having recognised that the CAP was also did a huge amount of damage to our countryside in lots of ways. Um, But I think there are huge opportunities, too, Mm. uh, to uh, really think what sort of farming, food, countryside do we want to have? and how can we uh, do things differently, Um, it's always been hard to have a a common policy across 27 nations um, and to be able to end up with one size fits all across all of that. So there is an opportunity for us to be doing things that are uh, right for here and not just right for the UK as a whole, but right for the regions within the UK because everywhere Mm, is different. Also different. I mean, when you travel around the UK, it's one
2: and he's so different yeah and I know that from just a farming perspective, that the quality of the soil is different, what you can grow, and that then therefore affects the landscape, what you see. You know, you see all the, the, the hill sheep, for example, in Cumbria, and then you'll see these wheat prairies in, in East Anglia or in, in flatter land.
3: Absolutely, and the right policies are going to be different in each place, probably. You mm-hmm. know, it's a common framework for everybody, mm-hmm. so everybody's playing basically in, by the same rules. Yeah. But you also need to be able to do what's right uh, for that geography and mm-hmm. that community, as well actually mm. it's about people as well as it is about yeah.
2: the environment. Now, I can't sit here and have you in the studios without asking you about GM and the use of glyphosate and to really explain S- to to those listening, those of you who know my well-being work will know that we've written about this a lot in the magazine and I've campaigned against GM in food for, for many, many years. I remember taking a, position, a petition with over a million signatures on it, actually, to Downing Street. It must be about, oh, I don't know, 20 years ago, maybe. And that was when I first became aware as a consumer that that gm ingredients like tomatoes for example and, and corn were coming into mainstream foods without being labeled and mm-hmm. like my big passion at the time was food labeling and i think as consumers we have the right to choose you know what we eat and buy and we don't have that unless we're informed by the label as to as to what that's doing and i think at the time that did stop a lot of gm being produced and used in food but it seems to me certainly as a farmer that that the gm is is coming in in two ways one in in the form of animal feed yeah that so we're eating animals that and and i'd love to talk to you about that about what your view is on any kind of residues or the impact on on animal health and ultimately our health um and then secondly this this increasing use it seems of of glyphosate and and is that the case and if so is it damaging
3: Okay, where do we start? I mean, I agree with you completely that we should have labelling. And I think we've been campaigning at the Soil Association for a long time that uh, meat products and, and animal products that have been fed on GM crops should be labelled as, labeled as such. And uh, that still that is still not happening. And it should be. Most people are eating meat, milk. Eggs uh, from animals that have been uh, fed GM, unless they're buying and organic. And, and is there evidence have moved away that, from it?
2: that 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 has um, changed, or, or that the, the produce is different?
3: I think there's been uh, there's been a little bit of research on that, but there's not been that much um, in terms of w- of, uh, of whether any of the GM material comes through uh, into the uh, in, into the final product we eat. I don't think it's something I'd want to sort of scaremonger about. No, sure. There uh, seems to be a honest. bit of
2: studies maybe on fertility, possibly affecting animal fertility. But as you say, it's kind of early, there. Early there early was days. some.
3: I mean, all the GM studies seem to be very disputed. There's a lot of um, you know, there's it. it, it they're very contentious. Um, we could have probably have a whole podcast on yep, that I'll okay. get Peter no- Melchard or somebody <laughs> to come and do that <laughs> Another with time. you that would be great. <laughs> um, but I think that you know my big concern about GM is the way that it has been used to allow us to continue to farm badly mm. um, you know something like 84% of uh, GM crops are basically uh, designed to be used either with glyphosate uh, or to plumb in uh, insecticides into the crops and uh, so I think that it has allowed us just to carry on with monoculture farming when the sort of uh, when the cracks were beginning to show. It's been a sticking plaster that's allowed bad farming to continue mm. for a few more decades, um, and now that sticking plaster is starting to wear thin as well. You're seeing the super weeds come, you know, in the states, and and you know. The so
2: these these are weeds that become resistant resistant to, to glyphosate. To okay, and glyphosate is the main pesticide. Glyphosate is used. the main pesticide.
3: So one of the main uh, reasons I think that GM became so popular was it allowed uh, the big seed companies to package up uh, glyphosate which was coming uh, out of its sort of you know it, it was becoming more widely available it, they couldn't control it coming out of license or whatever the term is um, to allow them to package glyphosate roundup ready uh, you know glyphosate was roundup was is the sort of brand name of a lot of glyphosate products uh, to be able to package the seeds and the uh, the chemical together in a way that allowed them to make the most of that chemical into the future um so uh, so that so that was the kind of that that's been the biggest use i guess mm. um of and you can understand why farmers might take it on board because it means they can just put one spray through the field uh you know and it'll kill everything except for the the crop um it makes management easier i think farmers are very very readily swayed by things that just make their life easier. But it made it easier in the very short term and in the longer term we're seeing these kind of problems coming back.
2: Interesting. What about the developing world? Because people will be saying, oh but what about solving global hunger? Surely the developing countries need this GM technology.
3: Well I don't think GM uh, in many instances has been about improving yield. It's been about making management easier. So uh, GM crops are are not high yielding. Um, And actually, a lot of the time, the kind of, you know, the the, the cost of the seeds is usually higher. Uh, They're packaged with those chemicals. A lot of the time, the problems in the developing world about credit, people don't have the finance. They can't risk too much on those kind of crops. Um, And uh, so I think a lot of the we must feed the world arguments are pretty misleading uh, Mm. around GM. And I remember even at the height of
2: the Ethiopian famine that Ethiopia was still a net exporter of grain. So a lot of these yeah. issues about poverty and hunger are so much to do with politics and distribution of food. They are. And, and not actually the growing practices. It's,
3: about, it's, it's largely about poverty and access to land. If people have got money, they can eat in virtually everywhere around the world yeah. um and uh, so and i think a lot of the time there are some sort of studio humanitarian um uh, arguments being given to mm-hmm. um uh to sort of promote the technologies that basically are not in those in those people's interests yeah
2: Very, very interesting. As you say, I think that's definitely a topic that I'd like to return to it in more detail. One of the things that I've learned over the years, especially since my last book, which was The Good Gut Guide, Mm. that's all about gut health, is the actual health the gut health if you like or the microbiome health of the soil absolutely because it has its own microbiology doesn't it mm. which i think we're only now perhaps beginning to fully understand
3: it does and i think that there's the, the sort of um uh, the similarities between gut health and soil health are are, are striking uh, it's the same principle that you know a healthy soil has a healthy balance of all these microbes most of which we don't even understand the function of yet absolutely. And you know billions of them we don't even know exist um, but when you start uh, destroying that or disturbing it um, uh, then all sorts of other problems come in their wake as it does with our own health mm. when we start how, up
2: how many gut. microbes are there in a teaspoon of soil it's some staggering statistics well, it's certainly over
3: it? a billion and I guess it depends how healthy the soil <laughs> is um, I used to yes. hear that, uh, that there were more microbes in a, in a teaspoon of soil than there were people on the planet but anyway I think it probably depends on the soil but there's an awful lot of them and there's a whole world in the soil that we don't fully yeah. understand yet yeah. um, we don't know enough yet about how you manipulate that in order to kind of give uh, you know benefits in terms of yields and plant health just as we don't know enough about how to manipulate gut health but we know mm. some basic stuff we do. Um, just as we know with ourselves that you know antibiotics are often going to really disrupt that mm. microbiome in our gut uh, so we know that uh, some chemicals are likely to disrupt that microbiome in the soil mm. um, and uh, so I'm hoping uh, that looking after our soil microbiome will become as fashionable as it has uh, to look after our gut oh, um, because, you know, the two are yeah. so, so strongly linked. Mm.
2: I'm really glad that you've mentioned those words, antibiotics, because this is, in a similar way to, to GM and that not being labelled on food, the traces of antibiotics, particularly in some of our meat products, is is again going in unlabeled and potentially causing huge problems and I think that's one of the success stories perhaps of the organic food movement is that you know that you're Meat has not been routinely produced using antibiotics, is that right?
3: Yes, I mean, the Soil Association has been campaigning on antibiotic overuse in livestock for over 20 years, and we published something like seven really weighty reports on this um, because it was a problem waiting to happen. It's been a problem that's been recognised since the 50s and 60s as a potential problem, but it's only just now being taken seriously. And the issue is not so much the residues in the meat, uh, but the fact that you've got ba- resistant bacteria. Um, um, which are coming through in livestock products that may then uh, be, be mean that we are become resistant, our, our own bacteria become resistant to those um, uh, to those to those antibiotics right. so it's a really it's a really interesting uh it's a really interesting one and i think it's a problem that's finally being taken seriously well, i think isn't the,
2: the the chief medical officer of the uk has called for, for a ban on routine use of antibiotics
3: yes and i think finally the farming industry is really trying to reduce um the usage um but
2: how can you do it if you're organic and you know what's the difference why why can organic farmers successfully produce livestock with not routine antibiotics and
3: others can't well it's because we are putting husbandry first so we're not pushing for so much for for yield at all cost animals are living outside they're being weaned later they're living on more natural diets we're reducing the stress and uh, and so they don't get sick so they don't get sick um, uh, as much and you know you obviously get obviously just as there are with you know the most perfectly kept human being Mm. there are occasions when something happens and you need an antibiotic so I'm not against antibiotics but I am against systems of farming which basically use them to prop up bad farming Mm. Um, and uh, so that's been our beef on antibiotics for the last you know 20-25 years Mm. has been a bit like chemical fertilizers it's allowing us to farm badly without getting those basic things right, which mm. are should be fundamental, whether you're farming organically or not. Those fundamentals of soil care, rotations, good nutrition, good husbandry, stress-free life, you know, all of those fundamentals, whether talking about people or animals, or the soil, it's all the same stuff.
2: And this is absolutely something that affects all of us and we all need to get
3: behind. Completely, um, and because if we if we you know as the chief medical officer has said you know if we don't tackle the antibiotics problem we're going to see this is going to cost I mean somebody said to me the other day when I was heard a lecture where somebody said this is going to cost more than the total GDP of the world it, you know it was kind of extraordinary <laughs> this kind of figure which I couldn't even comprehend the the sort of cost of running out of antibiotics because our whole life is premised on having these drugs that will uh, will. Be effective, um, so I think it is a really, really big issue. Um, but there will be others. You know, there will be others in a similar vein. Uh, but organic farmers have been using very low levels, um, and so we've got the techniques, um, we've got the husbandry, and mm, again, just that. just with soil, we're starting to share this now um, and uh, showing. I mean, if you take my pigs for example, you know, because they're not, they're not weaned until they're eight weeks old, they're out in the fresh air, they're in contact with soil, which actually in itself protects them protects their gut against all these bugs. They get a good Mm. immune system. Uh and we're you know, we're not having to do things like cutting their teeth and tails so you haven't got those kind of wounds or all of these things seem to make a big difference. Mm. And um and we would use uh you know a case of antibiotics on one in five hundred pigs for instance. Um and uh very, very, very low levels. Mm. Um so yeah. It's so inspiring to talk to
2: you, Helen. I'm so thrilled that you could come and just share a little bit about why this is so important. And I think although there is so much bad news in the world out there about food and farming and a lot of uncertainty too, obviously, there is so much good news as Mm. well. And there is so much potential and hope. And I think that's the overriding message that I'm getting is that if we can look around and learn a little more and think of the bigger picture, actually, there is hope isn't there out there if we can bring food producers and we as consumers can start supporting perhaps a little bit more these organic farmers and growers?
3: I think so I think that there's, uh, I think the world is changing very quickly in both in, in and is in. we're in quite an unpredictable moment in time but it is a moment where people can make decisions uh, at, at wherever you are in the world you can decide what sort of future we want to have and do we want to have one that cares for our farm animals, our countryside our health or do we just want to carry on this slightly mindless way that we've gone mm-hmm. uh, for the last few decades. Mm-hmm. So I feel very positive about the future, I know more and more people care about this stuff i'm talking to more and more people who say yeah i get it i really want to be part of this um and i'm talking to more farmers who want to be too so if we can encourage through the kind of products we buy through the kind of support we give getting involved in organizations that care about these things um then everything's to play for at the moment great news
2: helen browning thank you so much for being with us it's been a great pleasure thank you